Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. And I'm Sean. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, Brian, for the last time, I am super as always. 20 episodes in and some things never change. One of those things which we've referred to is the fact that when you start reading a book, you find it very hard to finish it. So what you're saying is that the novel on which this film is based, I have not completed. No, I was very impressed. I was very impressed. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our 20th episode. We, we do plan these out in advance. So we knew that this season of Broad Appeal would end with today's film. And Sean, in a kind of amazing moment of serendipity, was up in Glasgow, Glasgow visiting listener Aileen Johnson. And what? You were walking through a used bookstore. And what book did you come across? Primary Colours. The original novel, which is written by... Anonymous. Anonymous. So, like any dutiful podcast host, you bought the book. I did. And I I read more on the train home than I have since buying it. And I was drunk. (laughs) Today's movie is 1998's political satire drama... Primary Colors, directed by Mike Nichols, starring John Travolta, Emma Thompson, Kathy Bates, Adrian Lester, Billy Bob Thornton, Larry Hagman. Larry Hagman? Larry Hagman, in fact. And every other bloody... Pr- Alison Janney is in it? Yeah, and, lots of people. And Sally Tony, Kirkland. Tony Shalhoub, no. Sally Kirkland was nowhere to be seen. She was probably having breast reduction surgery at the time. But That's yeah. no laughing matter, I Brian. know, I know, Sean. It's painful. But as Liza Minnelli and uh, Gregory Hines once sang with Dudley Moore at the Oscars, and it all comes down to this. Yes, it all comes down to this. This is it. This is number 20. How do you feel? Relieved. Relieved? <laughs> No more of this excruciating torture. I can't believe we've been doing this for 10 months, honestly. (laughs) What a slog. What a grind. You know what? We should talk about where this originated from. Do you remember sitting in Julius's bar in New York City Mm. and making a list? A list, the length of our arms, drinking whiskey and having a great time. And talking about which actresses we wanted to pay tribute to. And that's where it began. It's true. One of the actresses who I knew without question had to be covered on Broad Appeal was Emma Thompson. There was a time in my life, a long period of time, where Emma Thompson was about as close to me as a person that you don't know can be. I saw every single Emma Thompson film, several of her television pieces, you know, I read her unauthorized biography. I was obsessed. And I think we did her a disservice by picking as our second episode... yourself. (laughs) What does that mean? It means you. You! Did her, her a disservice. I did. I did her a disservice when we picked Dead Again as our second episode, which is not only a mediocre film, but actually doesn't have a lot of Emma in it. And part of the reason was because we've talked about it before. You really don't know from Emma. You have seen what? Like Love Actually? What have you seen in terms of Emma Thompson movies? I once watched Danny Fee on ITV2 <laughs> one day. <laughs> There was a time in the middle of the 90s when Emma Thompson was the prestige actress extraordinaire. Yeah, but she got Oscar nominations just because she was Emma Thompson. Including uh, two in one year, and and also for screenwriting. But what I'm saying is the reason that we've not covered any of those wonderful movies is because I've seen them all dozens of times. But today's film, Primary Colors, it's not fair to call it a showcase for Emma Thompson. She has the secondary lead. John Travolta is the lead. And it is, in a sense 
I think this real sort of capstone to the end of Emma's kind of golden period, her imperial phase, as you might say. Thank you. She already had two Oscars by this point, one for screenwriting, one for acting, and she was about to transition into working less, focusing more on her family and on political activism, which is the kind of phase that she's been in now. You know, would I love more Emma Thompson in my life? Of course I would, but she's also doing wonderful things in the world. Now, Brian, if I may stop you there. Yes. This is also a film starring Kathy Bates, who we have done on this podcast, and who herself was also a quintessential actress of the 1990s. Yes, and in fact, Kathy Bates is the um, sole actor in this film who received an Oscar nomination. She received a Best Supporting Actress nomination, well-deserved, I think, for this for this film. But the one thing we haven't said about Primary Colors is, what the hell is it? We said it was a novel written by someone called Anonymous. Do you know what the story behind all this was? Well, I know half of it. <laughs> yes, I know you know half of it because you've read it, but I mean, the kind of media story. This novel introduced me to the term Romain à clé. Do you know what a Romain à clé is? I thought it was pronounced Romain à left. I believe, technically, it's Romain à clé. Uh, do you know what it means? Yeah, like a, a novel by someone else. Well, it means there's a key. There's a, a clay. Oh, it's a key. No, it's, it's C-L-E-F. All right, whatever. I don't know. A Romana clay or clef or whatever you want to call it is a novel in which it's clearly based on real people, but their names have been changed. So you need a key to unlock the mystery. If you sort of know the key, the cryptic code, you'll say, oh, that's really so-and-so and that's really so-and-so else. But you know what you should do? Get copies of the book and put them into a cube shape. And then it'll all become apparent to you. <laughs> yes, as long as we have John Hurt around to explain the alien life forms to Dr. Ellie Arroway. Listeners, just go back to the contact episode. You know it was great. <laughs> Turn this off. So, John, this is a Romana Clef about what figures? Primary Colours was based around the 1992 primary election, which gave us Bill Clinton, and, as a result, gave us Hillary Rodham Clinton. As a result, did she not exist before? Consequently, gave us Hillary Rodham. <laughs> I think concurrently, actually, you'll find that usually where Bill is involved, Hillary comes as a package deal. Well, whenever that Hillary was, was involved, Bill was somewhere behind well, can her. Can we just say, that was the complaint at the time. It's like, you've, I, I can remember very vividly in 1992, my stepmother having a button that said, I'm voting for Hillary's husband. So Hillary Clinton was a lightning rod from 1992 onward. She was not like any other political wife who had ever been around. Here was Bill, a kind of classic Southern politician caught in all kinds of philandering. Here was his wife. You know, she wasn't baking cookies and she wasn't like Tammy Wynette standing by her man. She was a complicated professional woman who had a hard time negotiating the role of being a political wife because she was a feminist, a woman in her own right, and kind of vacillated back and forth between knowing how to play that role. And I'm kind of sexy, if you think about it. So it has to be said that, obviously, Hillary Clinton is the presumptive Democratic nominee in 2016. Yep. So we are recording this episode on the in which the Associated Press has called her the presumptive nominee, and New Jersey and California and five of the states are also going to the polls yep. tonight. So as we record this, we do not know... If Hillary will win, you know, which of those primaries she may or may not win. She'll win New Jersey. Yeah. 
Well, she gets all the bridge and tunnel vote. Um, she has been on our minds all the time that we've been recording Broad Appeal. And, you know, as we have looked back over the last 20 episodes on women of the 90s, Hillary Clinton was a singular woman of the 90s. She's a singular woman of today whose, like, reputation from the 90s is very much, I think, in question and under scrutiny now as she's the candidate. It's no secret, is it, Sean, that you and I love Kate McKinnon's impersonation of Hillary Clinton. It is so good. And for those of you, few people who don't know what we're talking about, just go onto YouTube, type in SNL, Kate McKinnon, Hillary Clinton, and there's about five or six videos which you will have a lot of fun with. Because it's fair to say that actually a lot of people, including some very talented comic actresses on SNL... Jan Hooks, for example. Yeah, Amy Poehler. Yeah. They have tried to do a Hillary impersonation, and for whatever reason, I just don't think it's taken off. And Kate McKinnon's... She gets the observational ticks, but she also has this kind of, I think, empathy for the woman. Yeah, but you know what else, though? It's the kind of impression where even though... Hillary is a good, what, almost 40 years older yeah, than Kate yeah. McKinnon. Well, I mean, at least 30, for sure. You don't need to imagine her in anything but the suit jacket and the hair. Because the impersonation is, like all good impersonations, it takes on a life of its own. You know, we've been going down these various SNL wormholes and, like, looking back at Clinton depictions, you know, during the Clinton presidency. And... Jan Hooks, who, you know, I admire, basically plays Hillary Clinton in the 90s as a shrew. Some ball-busting shrew who has no laughs, no jokes. And all the entire joke is just, Bill is a philanderer and I'm there to, like, break his balls. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm sure it has something to do with the writing as well, probably. It was... Well, it was a, it was a time in SNL where there were fewer women writers. Yeah, presumably. And, yeah. But, um, and you know, even Amy Poehler, I think, never really got any kind of comic essence out of Hillary. So she's she's a hard person to play. What do you feel about the prospect of watching Emma Thompson tackle this role? It should be said, Emma has specifically said that her character in Primary Colors, Susan Stanton, that she did not base her portrayal on Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that is true, and it's worth pointing out. Yeah, but, I mean, it, Whereas John Travolta did base his performance on Bill Clinton. Travolta who, in my memory, is very good in this, is essentially doing a Bill Clinton impersonation. Emma is maybe not doing that, perhaps because she felt she wouldn't be able to do it. I don't know. But what what do you think? Like, do you think Emma Thompson is good casting for this kind of role? Well, I mean, physically, I can see a match between the two of them. They're also angular-featured women in who look good in parasuits, I suppose. Okay. What about, like, personality-wise? Like, when I... I mean, Well, Emma is a woman who's obviously was in control of her destiny in her career. Really? And, well, she wrote the screenplay. She acted in Dead Again. Yeah. As a favour. No, but what I'm saying is she eventually wrested control of her career after having been basically linked with her... Uh, so even... Her philandering husband, uh, so even, even better casting. Yeah, then. so perhaps there's a bit of emotional connection between the two. Um, well, this is the thing about Primary Colors. So the novel came out, there was this marketing ploy, and it was written by Anonymous, which, when you have to think about it, is like a genius marketing ploy. Do you, would you agree? Absolutely. It's kind of saying, ooh, look, here's this inside look into the scandal-ridden campaign of the current president. I mean, it could have been written by anybody. Like, for all we know, it could have been written by Jennifer Flowers. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was Anonymous. Um, it turned out to essentially just be written by political reporter Joe Klein, which is a bit of a, like, here's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. I mean, 
I'm not sure that Joe Klein had any more insight into the Clinton campaign than anybody did. You know, it's not like he was actually in there, in the rooms with, with all the people. Well, you know, the reason why I didn't finish this book, I don't know if we've told you this to your listeners, but I sometimes read passages from Portrait of a Lady aloud to Brian. Which we still have also not finished. Which we're going to finish on our holiday, I swear <laughs> to God. It's just that I tried reading passages from Primary Code out to Brian. I fell asleep. And he fell, and like, I fell asleep. It is just... It, it's what? pablum. Pablum. What does that mean? It's like food you give to a baby. Pablum? Yeah, bland. Never heard that before. Okay. Anyway, so the thing about it is, while the actual events of the story drive it, mm. none of the writing does. So of course I didn't finish the it's book. It's not a well-written book. What do you know about the 1992 Democratic primary? Well, from what I do know is that Bill Clinton was the governor of some know-nothing state. What state? Arkansas. That's right. Where was he from? Hope. A little town called Hope. Yeah. And nobody expected this guy to come out there and win the whole thing. So he was a bit of a tabloid sensation as well. I think, I think I have this right. When the election was just gearing up, President George H.W. Bush at the time had very high approval ratings. So most of the major Democrats did not want to run because they thought they were going to end up in the situation of running against a popular incumbent. As it turned out, the economy started to tank and H.W. became a much less strong candidate. There was the first Gulf War, which was a big success, I hear. <laughs> for for H.W. Well, yes. Unless you were, you know, adolescent Brian with his radical priest uncle out protesting with signs that had pictures of Saddam Hussein shaking hands with H.W. Bush saying, let's be friends. Now, who was... True story, true story. Who was Mondale again? <laughs> Walter Mondale? Now, can you tell our listeners a little story about Walter Mondale? <laughs> Walter Mondale ran against Ronald Reagan in 1984. He was Jimmy Carter's vice president. And young Brian Mullen in his kindergarten class in Milton, Massachusetts, was the only student in the entire kindergarten class who cast his mock election vote for Walter Mondale. And didn't you cry when... <laughs> no, no, I cried when Jesse Jackson lost. That was in 1988, Sean. I had a long history of supporting the doomed liberal candidates. That's why you were the McGovern, isn't it? <laughs> Do you want to hand this country over to some pansy poet socialist like George McGovern? You know, they say McGovern can't lick our dick, but I think I've proven that I can. <laughs> so, Sean, okay, so to leave the political innuendo behind and to turn to other political innuendo, what do you know about the scandals of the 1992 campaign? First of all, there was Jennifer Flowers. She was, a, wasn't she like a hairdresser or something? And that's Cashmere McLeod, who I know is a character in the film. I think she's a hairdresser in the novel. In the was film. she I'm a not sure. dude property, was she? Or she I don't know. Back, back room aid or something. What I love is that you're mixing all the Clinton scandals together. So yeah. you're basically <laughs> white mixing water. white water with Jennifer Flowers. I mean, didn't she take furniture from the White House? <laughs> And also she had a seance with Eleanor Roosevelt. Like it's all mixed in there together somehow. It's 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 a Cuisinart, you know? The Clintons basically all their scandals, if you are a part of the vast right wing conspiracy, as Hillary once said, you know, it all seems as if all these scandals are linked. But basically, I mean Bill Clinton had a string of many different sexual improprieties, so to say, adulteries, accusations of sexual harassment, all different sorts of things over time, which of course led us eventually to the kangaroo court of the impeachment proceedings that were spun out from the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Didn't I hear recently that Ken Starr said that Bill Clinton was a great guy? 
I think now, yeah, now Ken Starr has come out in favor of that, and I think it's actually denounced Trump or something. I don't know. I mean, Ken Starr, talk about someone with no principles. He was, he was hired at taxpayer expense to investigate Whitewater, and then somehow this eventually became uh, a witch hunt for the president based on filleting an intern with a scar. I don't know. Okay, well, let's not relitigate the no, 90s. So filleting but... an intern with a scar means he put it in out of her mouth. Is that right? Okay, no, sorry. I just like to say the word fillet, yeah, to be honest. No, she filleted him. Yeah, but then he also used the cigar. Yeah, but he performed, in that case, he performed like like, uh, like cunnilingus with the cigar. I don't think it was cunnilingus, but Cunnilingus is penetration. With the it? tongue, isn't it? But that's... This is not staying in. Is it? No, this is definitely Well, I know analingus in. is rimming. But... <laughs> I know Anna, a true story, starred... Sally Kirkland. But anyway. <laughs> it's all a circle. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this stuff kept coming out. Like they called it in the time, in the press of the time, you'll like this term, a bimbo eruption. They were like wildfires that had to be put down. And But you know, for all we know, Bill and Hillary Clinton have had an open marriage. We just don't know that. Well, apparently not. I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm sure that Hillary had to get outraged publicly because that was the thing to do. But I thought you read her biography, Living History. Oh, God. As if Doesn't she... she say she cried? What did she say? I don't, I don't remember. It was, it was years ago. I mean, what do you think is the standard line about, about Bill and Hillary and their long marriage? I mean, they've been together since the 70s. You I know? think even before that. Yeah. So what's... How would you say is the kind of depiction of their relationship? Well, they're both people who love power, and they're both people who love influence. The positive line would be like, they're both people who want to make society better, which is debatable, but yes. Well, there's that. No, there is that. But there are people who are part of the political system. And the same way you are part of the theatre world, and I'm trying to be part of the film world, they are part of the political world in ways that we would never be. I find it hard to believe that they're together because of some Faustian pact. I do not believe that for a second. Meaning what? What I mean is that they met each other in university when they were both young, both educated, both frisky. They realised that both of them can achieve their dreams together. Wrong. Well, wrong in a way. Well, Hillary had to put her dreams in back But that, and I think that's what's so interesting to me about Hillary as a character, is her generation that she grew up in, right? We're talking about a marriage that happens... When? Presumably in the mid to late 70s. I mean, Chelsea is basically the same age as me. So Hillary is of a generation. She is definitely from that early generation of feminists. Yeah, she's from an era where women were going to university and getting degrees and getting jobs. But the first generation of women to do that, who were yeah. facing, like, incredible opposition. Yeah, but who were also expected to get the degrees, get the jobs, and then get married, and then maybe just stop forever. It was easier for women of a younger generation to, to have careers and things. Hillary was caught between that kind of 50s generation of women who were homemakers or consigned to certain careers, and other women who had a world in which their professional ambitions were seen as sort of standard and de rigueur, right? And so she had to navigate that funny line. And I think if you look at her as a first lady, you look at her as a professional political figure now, she constantly has to walk that line. And that's why I think she's a fascinating character for someone like Emma Thompson to play, you know? Well, Hillary Clinton is a fascinating character. And I mean, can we, I mean, I didn't want to go into this, but we should talk about it a little bit. Go, go. The okay. California primary is tonight. When Bernie Sanders came on the scene and I first heard about him and read about him in the New Yorker profile and heard about him at these Democratic debates... He was saying everything I wanted to hear. He was interesting. He was funny. He was on the left. He was a real leftist American, which you do not get. Now, I am a person who is a card-carrying member of the Labour Party. I voted for Jeremy Corbyn. I support him. 
I still support him. However, there is a big difference between this campaign in 2016 and 2008. In 2008, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and was behind by 69 delegates and she was basically the rug neck pulled. and neck yeah but they said you're never going to get it just pull out okay? well no I mean yeah. it was she, one fair and square but it was a tight race it was a tight race Obama. where they had to go to Puerto Rico and do the campaign yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah, and do yeah, all yeah. that stuff it was incredibly tight okay and everyone was like give it up Hillary give it up give it up give it up okay this is long before Benghazi before anything before yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. tonight She's been declared the winner already before this starts. She still wants to win all those other states. What I'm saying is that there is, like it or not, a huge amount of hypocrisy and sexism that follows this woman and has followed this woman all her life, even by the people who are supposed to not promote it, and that includes Bernie Sanders. And, and you know, can I just say, I'm not going to weigh in on the Bernie versus Hillary. That can be a discussion for another time. But what I find fascinating is none of this opprobrium seems to attach itself to her husband, Bill. So Bill Clinton, in my mind, is the real sellout here. I mean, when you look at Hillary's record, particularly in recent years as a member of the Obama administration, and as a candidate now, it's much more liberal and progressive than her husband ever was. But for some reason, she's saddled with her husband's record. And he, because of being this lovable, charismatic guy, still has very, very high approval ratings. And, and and that's one of the things I think that's fascinating that Primary Colors, in my memory, is going to get at, which is the sense of, like, this question of authenticity versus political charisma. It's this classic political story that's going to be about how do you sell yourself to the people? Mm. And is it about your persona and the image that you project and your ability to feel everybody's pain, you know? Or is it about what you're actually saying. What, what is the truth? You know, I've grown up with Hillary Clinton since I was a teenager into my now adulthood. Now, were you old enough to vote in 92? No, you no I was not old no, enough to vote. In fact, for us, yeah. another anecdote, I was not old enough to vote, but I did in my uh, middle school debate. We, so we had a debate where different students had to take on the position of different candidates and there, were, of course, there were three of us picked to represent the three candidates. Oh my god! So there was also somebody playing, um, somebody playing. What's his name? The little guy. It was me, Sean. I represented Ross Perot. You in were the Ross Pierce, Perot in the Pierce Middle School. <laughs> in the Pierce Middle School, nineteen ninety-two debate. Of all the anecdotes that you've told multiple times, how have you never mentioned this one once? Sean, you I were even, Ross Perot. I even put on fake ears because he had. I mean, my ears are big to begin with. But I played Ross Perot. I might even have done a Dana Carvey-esque accent because I was a big fan of SNL at the time. I was like, yeah, I got PowerPoint here. We're against NAFTA. We're a giant second sound is pulling jobs down to Mexico. And we do not believe in that. Yes, Ross Perot. That was me. Who played Bill Clinton? I don't remember. It's probably a girl. No one else wanted to do it. <laughs> Wait, how do we get into that? What were we saying? I don't know. Oh, was I an adult? I've grown up with Hillary all my, you know, adult political life. And what I think I have discovered is that this woman, flaws and all, if she were a man, we would just be like, what a competent, dedicated, hard worker. With, but, with, with a but few because fuck we're, ups. We're, yeah, yeah. To be honest, with fewer fuck-ups than her husband, but because she's a woman, we're like, oh, she has no heart. Oh, she has no personality. Oh, all she likes is work. And you're like... Do we know anything about Paul Ryan? Like He goes to the gym. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, wh why do we hold Hillary to this other standard? I'm not sure that Primary Colors is going to end up being the Hillary movie that we are selling it as. 
However, there should be a Hillary movie. And I think Emma Thompson should probably still play her. During the um, first Benghazi hearings, I remember there was a clip of her, like, in a frustrated tone, speaking to one of the Republican senators. And I thought, that right there, that's the Oscar clip in the Hillary Clinton biopic as played by Emma Thompson in, you know, whatever year. 2024. 20, yeah, 2022, maybe. Yeah. But you, do you know what I mean? Like, the closest we've probably gotten is Joan Allen in The Contender. But you know what, okay, let me just finish this. Yeah. Just because you're a woman does not mean you have to like Hillary Clinton. Okay? No. Put that out there. But what I'm saying from an entirely objective point of view, okay, is that there is a hypocrisy and a sexism and a hatred that comes from people from the right, from the left, from the center for this person. Yeah. Because of her being a woman. We are about to have her be the first you know, nominee of a major party for president of the United States. And where's the where's the celebrating of this? It will come. It will come. And you know, I've had fights, huge fights about this. Because, yes, I support Sanders. But you do not see that there is this hypocrisy. You don't join a club having looked in the windows for 20 years and then suddenly you get in there and you think, well, I don't quite like these rules. I want you to change them for me. Okay? This is the democratic system, and if you don't like it, then tough. Democratic with a large D as opposed large to a small D. D. Yes. Yeah. He has made his impact, okay? But Bernie, give it up. You haven't won can we talk? Can we talk about the movie, Sean? Let's talk about the movie. What are you expecting? I'm expecting punchy dialogue, uh-huh. because at least the book had some of that when it was there. Every other subplot I couldn't give a hoot about. Yeah. I also expect, being Mike Nichols, a lot of long takes. Are you expecting good performances? Always. Who do you think is going to be the MVP? Kathy Bates. Yeah? Yeah. Are you expecting to like anyone else? Emma Thompson. Are you expecting that this film will teach us anything about feminism, politics, the 1990s that we don't already know? They- it will show the role of what the role of a wife is like, I think. Hmm. Or what the role of a, of a, of a high-profile wife was supposed to be in the 1990s. I mean, the interesting thing about this movie in terms of its chronology is it depicts the 1992 campaign. The book was written in 96, just as Clinton was about to run for a second term. But the film came out in 98 exactly at the same time that the Lewinsky scandal was breaking. So they made it before the Lewinsky scandal, but it couldn't help but be received in the public with this sense that these old affairs that Clinton had seemingly, you know, surpassed and moved on from were his sort of Achilles heel. And I think it'd be interesting to see whether now us looking at it in 2016, we feel like we're seeing it with different eyes in terms of the standards we hold politicians to, the ideas of you know, male privilege and sexism and all that kind of stuff. And also, you know, just because somebody is a wife doesn't mean they have to, like, give up their whole beliefs and career and everything. I think about Michelle Obama an awful lot. Because she was earning much more than her husband was when he was a senator. Yeah. But, I mean, she still had to make those sacrifices. Probably because she learned from the example of Hillary that that she was going to be pilloried in the media if she didn't play something like the role that people are expected to play. Yeah, grow those vegetables, you know? <laughs> I mean, Laura Bush didn't have to rub her brain cells together to have any kind of, you know, duty or responsibility. Laura Bush was a qualified librarian. She also Sean. killed a man. <laughs> it's true. Okay, <laughs> Laura Bush and Barbara Bush, you know? Actually, I quite like Barbara Bush. <laughs> can we just can we just say our favorite, let's say our favorite first ladies, go ahead. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson. Hillary Clinton. Rosalind Carter. <laughs> Mamie Eisenhower. 
Well, no, Sean, come on. You must love Pat Be Nixon. Betty Ford. Don't you love Betty Ford? No, you, I don't like Pat Nixon. The clinic, the clinic is one of your favorite places, right? The Betty Ford Clinic? Yeah, Betty Ford. You checked in there. My favorite, no, I'll tell you my favorite first ladies. Michelle Obama. <laughs> Number one. You knew, you knew Martha Washington's maiden name the other day. Yeah, Martha Dandridge. Did anyone listening to this podcast know that Martha Washington was born Martha Dandridge? Anybody who did junior cert history in How Ireland? How did this boy from County Longford know this? It was in the history book. So who, who, say, sorry, Michelle Obama, who else? Hillary Clinton. Is number two. Probably, yeah. I yeah. think Michelle Obama's probably my favorite. Although Michelle... What have you got against Lady Bird? I don't know her. Her cause was Wildflowers, the <laughs> Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Park in Texas. And probably Pat Nixon. The nice Republican cloth coat. You're just picturing Joan Allen <laughs> at this point. All right. Has anyone seen Cecil B. Demented? I want to know if Pat Nixon got fucked in this room. Alright, and on that note, is it time to watch Primary Colors? Brian, fuck taxes, it's time to live free or die. Nashua, New Hampshire, here we come! Primary Colors! A hairdresser has come forward alleging a long-term affair with the married candidate. The story is yet unconfirmed, appeared today in The Flash. There has been no statement yet from the governor regarding the young woman, Kashmir McLeod. But the accusation comes right on the heels of the disclosure that Governor Stanton was arrested in 1968 in Chicago. We repeat... Fucking eyewitness news, God damn it. Ted Koppel wants someone from the team for his show. Yeah, 60 Minutes wants a Sunday night. We have to just Frankly take this, they're going to dignify this garbage and treat it like a real story, and we have to go along with that? Well, we can't ignore it. I mean, you know, they might have given him Chicago because that was 30 years ago, and they might have given him Cashmere because she was paid for the story. But, I mean, the two right on top of one another, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you're right. I mean, people are going to be saying, do we really want a former radical hippie, you know, that messes with hairdressers? He did not fuck Cashmere McLeod. If you can't handle that simple fact, you can leave right now. All right. Let's think this through. Who has thoughts about 60 Minutes? Okay, Sean, are you ready to record the second half? I've got my women's card right here, Brian. And I want you to deal me in. <laughs> you sound a bit rough, Sean. I was giving a few victory speeches in California. <laughs> then I was chilling in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> and I'm with her. So what happened since we pressed record in the first half, Bri? Uh, well, Hillary Clinton won four out of the five primaries, including the big enchilada of California. And she historically clinched the nomination as the first woman to be the nominee of a major national party in the United States. Congratulations. <laughs> now, her and Donald Trump will have to lip-sync for, for their, their life. life. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I sincerely wish Hillary Clinton good luck and don't fuck it up. <laughs> in other actress news, apparently Meryl Streep could join in in the lip-syncing as uh, Donald Trump. That was grotesque. It really was. <laughs> I didn't hear her speak. I just saw those pictures. She looks like a Roald Dahl drawing. <laughs> I thought she looked like a strange sort of mix of Oompa Loompa and Falstaff. But yes, 
<laughs> there you go. So in, in addition to all these world historical events, we also watched Primary Colors. We did, yeah. We did. Sean, was Primary Colors the way you expected it to be? Well, because I've seen a few Mike Nichols films, I kind of know what to expect. I mean, it was no postcards from the edge, but <laughs> hey, listen, I make concessions. I detect a certain lack of enthusiasm in the way that you're talking about Primary Colors. Well, Brian, the truth is, is that I'm not sure if I liked Primary Colors. I have to say, we didn't A really... bit like Hillary Clinton herself. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's credible. It's got all the elements to make it work. I'm just not sure I liked it. There's a certain chromosome that's possibly missing. I think I probably liked the film more this time watching it than I did um, in 1998. I was essentially gagging for this movie when it was going to come out in 1998. The notion of her playing Hillary Clinton in this big movie adaptation. I was ready for it to be a masterpiece. I remember being quite disappointed. In particular, it has to be said by Emma's American accent. I think this was probably other than the time that she played Nanny G on Cheers, uh, Frasier's ex-wife. This was probably the first time I'd ever seen her do an American accent. And I remember thinking, ooh, Emma, it's a little bit... A little bit forced. You know, British people often find it difficult to do American accents, where Irish people are usually quite good. We, when we say all the, the letters and words, especially R sounds, mm. all you have to do is make it a bit more nasal. Well, I mean, I think Emma clearly is concentrating on the fact that she has to say her R's. And it's, it's unfortunate that her first arrival involves talking about the state of New Hampshire and fly fishing for four hours. I think it's always difficult when you have a, a posh English accent to go into an American one, mm. because there's even fewer letters you say. <laughs> in all fairness to Emma, she acquitted herself much better by the time she did uh, Angels in America, also directed by Mike Nichols. Yeah, she was good in that as the angel. But I mean also with her American accent. Yeah, that's the role I was, I've always wanted to play. What, the angel in the Angels angel. in America? Yeah. I've always wanted to be Hannah Pitt. <laughs> So anyway, um, okay, we're, we're, we've, we've talked about Emma's accent, but we've not said much more about the movie. I think I liked it more this time. It actually seemed to me a more intelligent take on politics than I remember it being then. Well, let's just do a whistle-stop of the plot. Yeah. Well, essentially, it, it follows, to a degree, the actual action of the 1992 primary campaign in which the Clintons are substituted by these two people, Jack and Susan Stanton. And our way into understanding the story is through a fictionalized character, a young black campaign manager named Henry Burton. What did you think of Adrian Lester's American accent? I thought that he was quite good. I mean, Adrian Lester is a great actor. It's, uh, it's quite striking. He never had really that many other film roles except for... Kenneth Branagh's film of Love's Labor's Lost, oh, thus continuing Kenneth Branagh's trait of poaching Emma's co-stars. As soon as they star with Emma, he would then poach them immediately afterwards to star in a not-as-good film. I thought he was kind of sexy, because you get a lot of shots of him in like his loungewear or bedwear. It's true, he does spend a lot of the movie topless, lying in bed. He has sex with quite a few people. He has sex with Maura Tierney. He has sex with um, his original girlfriend at the start of the movie. And I swear, I think there's an implied sexual relationship with Emma as well, although well, we don't see that. You think that? I'm not so sure. Talk about who Adrian Lester is as a character, as a construct. He's like a young campaign operative who is like the grandson of a famous black... Uh, Civil rights leader. Yeah. Fictional. So he comes preloaded with his own history and experience. 
and he's kind of poached by the Stanton campaign. He's sort of seduced into it. I yeah. mean, the the opening shot of the film is him at a campaign event in Harlem, right, at a, at a school. And you watch as a hand that we don't know whose hand it is. It turns out to be John Travolta's, you know, sort of shaking hands, embracing people on the on the campaign trail. They really dig deep into the notion that Stanton slash Clinton's charisma is his appeal, right? It's his charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Correct. Um, so, in essentially, in that first scene we get kind of all the seeds and the elements of the story in the sense that he is very good with people, right? He's at this, like, adult literacy project run by Alison Jammy in a tiny but memorable cameo. You see your knickers. <laughs> yeah, she... Or, for our American audiences, panties. For some uh, unexplained reason, she seems to fall down quite a lot. I'm not quite sure why. She runs this adult literacy campaign. He listens to a number of working class black and Latino people talk about their struggles. And then he kind of gives this empathic story about how his Uncle Charlie fought in World War II but couldn't read. And everyone's just like, you know, tears are rolling down their cheeks and they're thinking, God, this guy really understands the working man. It later turns out that that story about Uncle Charlie is complete fabrication. And this, I think, gets to the crux of who this Stanton character is, and by extension, the depiction of Clinton, which is that they're like, he has incredible political skills. Sometimes he fudges the facts and he lies and he plays dirty tricks in order to appear, you know, attractive to the voters. And the question, I guess, is to what degree is a certain amount of inauthenticity valuable if it will get you elected? You see, I thought a lot about this um, after the film. Mm -hmm. This person telling the story really kind of empathizes with their struggle. Yes, he is lying, but he is saying good things, isn't he? Well, and that's exactly what, at various points, both Travolta as Stanton and Emma as his wife, that's the case they make. They're like, look, we do believe in social change, progress. We're the best hope for for making that happen because we know how to win. Even though there are lots of fictional politicians in this movie, real politicians get invoked all the time. Particularly, your namesake, George McGovern. Yeah. Why, why is he prominent in the film? Because he was the greatest American president that ever was. <laughs> but also, George McGovern was a, an idealistic American presidential candidate. Well, he was a left-wing pinko, commie Bernie Sanders of his day, anti-war. I'd say he was a bit better than Bernie Sanders. <laughs> what do you actually know about George McGovern? That he was great. <laughs> he has my name. <laughs> well, I think the thing is, the reason why... He wasn't just as shouty as Bernie Sanders is. Pr probably not, no. But the reason why he's held up as a significant figure is because... For these baby boomers, the Stantons, they worked as young people on the McGovern campaign. So the idea is they were idealists in those days. McGovern obviously lost to Nixon. If he'd been a better candidate, if he'd been better at the game of politics, maybe he would have won, maybe wouldn't have had Nixon, we wouldn't have Watergate. That's what they're implying. Mm. So it's like the dichotomy in the movie is what is the trade-off between politics, which is a dirty game get into office, get the votes so that you can get your agenda across. But then other people within the movie represent the opinion, okay, but if you play dirty and you lie and you cheat your way to the top, then don't you just become corrupted yeah. and you end up selling out your ideals. Yeah, that's that's basically what the movie's about. Yeah. Did you find that a thought-provoking 
question? Yes, I did, because it, I kind of thought the story became a bit more interesting when it became about the morals of these people. Do we do something wrong so that we can be in a position to do right? Mm-hmm. Or do we do right and ha- never have the potential to make a change? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as as Travolta says towards the end of the film, he says, even Abraham Lincoln was probably a whore before he was a president. And I was like, a whore? Like an actual whore in a log cavern? Like, whoa. Yeah, I found that one line not great. It wasn't Elaine May's best. No. No. Uh, she did have a few good lines, though. Well, a lot of the lines are from the book. Yeah. Including, what about that great Kathy Bates line? I'm a gay lesbian woman. I do not mythologize the male sexual organ. Probably from the book. Probably. Yeah. I, so, Brian, I've got a question for you. We, we are basically saying that in this film of, of men that we are going to focus on two women. Do you think maybe that your disappointment in Emma's performance was because while Susan Stanton could be the genuine female role, like supporting role, that she was usurped by Kathy Bates' Libby by including her in it? No, because I love them both. They're both brilliant. And I actually, I would like to examine who these two women are and what their relationship is as well. I remember being disappointed because I remember thinking there's not enough Emma in the movie. But watching it this time, there was a lot more Emma than I thought there was. Yeah. Actually, Stanton is not actually the center of the scene a lot of the time. To be honest, the real problem is that good as Adrian Lester may be as an actor and sexy as he may look without his shirt on, the character of Henry Burton is like one of those character constructs who only exists to be idealistic and then to feel disillusioned and essentially has no character. I know, it's sad. Would you agree? I agree. I agree. Yeah, and I think that is probably a flaw that comes from the novel is like, we are excited by watching versions of the political people we know. We're not necessarily excited about watching this kind of narrator cipher figure. Do you care about his relationships? Do yeah, because he, he starts off with a like uh, girlfriend who's a, a black nationalist journalist, right? She writes for a magazine called The Black Advocate, and she is like, why are you going to work for a southern cracker governor who hasn't done shit for black people, is what she says, and I believe. She's, she's like the, you know, she she walks off set and onto a Spike Lee film. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, she was, it actually, she would have made the film be more interesting had her presence been a bit bigger, well, but she does, at one point, appear to uh, rock the boat. Well, because, yeah, she does, because she brings up the um, allegations that Stanton was arrested during the Vietnam War for protesting. But I think, actually, you know, the more I think about it, race is woven through this movie in an interesting way, right? Because the Stantons come from the South. Yeah. That part of their appeal, which continues to be Hillary's appeal, is her appeal to the African-American community. I mean, it was Toni Morrison who said Bill Clinton was our first black president. It's amazing. I mean, well, do you think Toni Morrison lo- like, really loved Bill Clinton? Yeah, for really? sure. I mean, a lot of... But oh, why? I mean, he essentially grew up on welfare, child of a single mother in the South, and at least nominally... He was at least able to present the image that he was fighting for the interests of African Americans. Please don't send us hate mail. We know all about the crime bill. We know all about Sister Soldier. We know all about welfare reform and the contract for America. Yeah, so this, we know all this, which is why it's, well, it's the image. Yeah. It's the image that they were. Because I have, to sell. I have asked the question a few times. Like, I don't, I, I, why, like, why? It's not. Just, it can't just be a southern thing. It is. It's the like saxophone and Arsenio Hall. It's the politics of image as opposed to substance, mm. right? You know, my mother. Adored Bill Clinton. No she doubt. She used to call him My Bill. <laughs> Did she sing the song? What's that? There's a song called My Bill. It's a famous song from Showboat. It's very hard to sing, but it's something like, 
It's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him. He's just my bill. I, Something like that. I don't think she signed that. Don't, don't send in hate mail for that either. I'm sorry, Oscar Hammerstein. Well, I mean, now we're going to have to get the rights to the song, Brian. <laughs> Which we've had to do for every song. The Hammerstein estate is notoriously litigious. But what were we saying? How did you feel race factored into this movie? It is fascinating, isn't it? Because he tends to like weave amongst these like African American communities in which like the thing that links them is their southernness. Well, and also a very pointed way yeah. that he he needs their votes. And interestingly, the Adrian Lester character is part of the reason that they're courting him so much to be on the campaign does appear to be that he's he's black and he's the grandson of a civil rights leader. But as the James Carville character played by Billy Bob Thornton says, I'm probably blacker than you. Hotchkiss. He calls him Hotchkiss, which is a New England prep school. Oh. Did you did you pick up on that? I thought I knew it was something, uh, at least something peppy. Do you know anyone who went there? Uh, I probably do. I'm sure I've crossed paths with him somewhere. <laughs> So even though he's the grandson of a civil rights leader, where does his mother now live? Yeah, they all live in Beverly Hills next to the veils from postcards from the edge, no doubt. <laughs> he is hardly down home with the folks, right? No. And even the way he speaks, he speaks like a nerdy white guy. Yeah, so... And, and I, I can say that. And I think that's a... Well, I can definitely say that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an interesting depiction of the kind of complex vectors of identity around race and class and, and all of that that the movie handles with sophistication. Do you think that making Henry Burton prep school educated Ivy League and making him black kind of p puts him in a position of no position in the film? As in, he moves he moves to each end of the spectrum. Well, he makes no ripples on the water surface. Do you find that? He's more a symbol than he is a character. That's, and he is yeah. both for the Stantons and, sadly, for the audience. He says, I want to believe in something. Nominally, he joins the Stanton campaign because he thinks they might be the new hope for progressivism in America. And then we watch those notions get disabused. And basically, I mean, we run through the stations of the cross of the Bill Clinton primary campaign, right? We have... We have, let's just shout them out. We've okay, so we have a sex scandal. Like, an initial sex scandal with, um... Cashmere McLeod. Cashmere McLeod, who's Jennifer... I was about to say Lawrence, but no. Hudson. <laughs> Flowers. Reflexes. Uh, Jennifer Flowers, yeah. And I think what's interesting is, like, the way in which the, the plot of the book-slash-movie will be very close to real events, and then will suddenly do something that has, like, absolutely nothing to do with yeah. real events. So... I'm pretty sure that everybody agrees that Bill Clinton did have sex with Jennifer Flowers, and she did have tapes. But in this movie, it turns out that the tapes are fake, which is, again, just like a plot construction. Yeah. And then later, um, Stanton gets in trouble. And this, I think, is entirely fictionalized. He gets in trouble because he supposedly fathered an illegitimate child with a teenage black woman. And there's a whole thing about his paternity test. Yeah. Yeah, but then we have all these other figures kind of waltzing through. Instead of Mario Cuomo, we have somebody Ozio. Yeah. You know, and instead of my beloved New England Senator Paul Songus, we have somebody named Lawrence, I think his name is. Who is Paul Songus? Paul Songus. Paul Songus was a senator from Massachusetts and was the main rival of Clinton in 1992. But then he was diagnosed with cancer, actually, and dropped out of the race. And in the, in the film... 
the guy has a heart attack. So Brian, we've talked briefly about Emma Thompson and we mentioned a couple of lines of dialogue from Kathy Bates, but who is Libby Holden in this? What is she? Well, she who is she? <laughs> she brings, it has to be said, a burst of mojo into the film. Like, there are, I think it's well needed. There are good scenes and there are decent lines and there's some quite good performances. But when Kathy Bates comes into the action, that's where it really kicks off into, into high gear, right? Because as the first sex scandal breaks, they well, the, the other campaign members need to sit down first with Mrs. Stanton, do you remember? And they have to tell her, you know, they have to ask her, is your husband fucking around? That scene was good. That was good, wasn't it? First of all, they were all shit scared to tell her. Yeah. I have to be in Concord in an hour to meet Jack. What's the crisis? Well, it's campaign business. It's uh, private. Oh, please. If it's not too Lucille private Lucille is one you. of my closest friends and part of this campaign. <clears throat> What's the crisis? trying to figure this out if it did happen if it did happen then he's not going to get trapped like Hart because we know the rules if some bimbo from a former life comes forward then we just say bullshit bullshit is right I don't even know why you're what talking are you suggesting about. we do how would you deal with it by knowing more than they do by being prepared so that when a story like Chicago comes up we can fight back with the truth that's impossible how are we supposed to know what kind of garbage they're gonna come up with well that's the point Lucille that's the whole ever fucking point. We need to hire an operative to do research. You see what I mean? We need to get somebody that can get Investigate our lives. Investigate everything. Emma does this wonderful thing. I have to say, like, accent aside, Emma is brilliant when she's silent in this movie. Yeah, and, and she that, gets that good close-ups. That's not faint praise. She honestly does this amazing thing. It's not unlike, like, Diane Keaton in The Godfather, where there'll be shots where she's like on the side of the room listening to things and thinking about things and you just sense this depth of like conflict, ambiguity, regret, guilt, frustration all simmering below the surface and that is hard to play. Like it's probably harder to do that effectively than to get a standard American accent. Mm. So let's 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 give Emma her due. And she has to play kind of a dual character where in, and, and just like Hillary Clinton herself, in big groups of people, she comes across as strident. But in more personal situations, she does have that warmth and disarmament. Yeah, she, she, she's a fa their, their depiction of her um, is quite fascinating because she is this kind of ball buster. Like when she first comes and meets Jack on the tarmac and she is clearly a strategist, right? Like in every scene of the movie, she is not sitting out of the strategic discussions. She's there with the campaign, telling them you have to do this, you have to do that. But then she's also tender, like in the scenes, particularly alone with Adrian Lester, she's trying to coax him in to join them. She gets idealistic, she makes him a cup of tea. I even think she kind of seems to be slightly flirting with him or seducing him just as much as Jack is. Typical misogynist. A woman can't be friends with a man by having to choose him. But, so, we, we got slightly sidetracked because we didn't say who Libby Holden was. So, because the Stantons fear 
that they fear their own history. Yeah, they fear that their history may bubble up, which is which is fascinating. But yeah. I think is actually true of politicians. Do you think politicians get someone to investigate themselves? I think, from what I know, this is right. That like the campaign staff doesn't necessarily trust that the candidate is going to tell them the truth about everything. So they hire people to almost go out and like do the opposition research so that they know all the worst things before the enemy knows the worst things. Mm. And that's who Libby Holden is. So who is she? Describe Kathy Bates' character. She's a big gun-toting, truck-driving dyke. <laughs> Absolutely. From now on, you can call me the dustbuster. You know, honey child, I'm stronger than dirt. I believe you. And, and when we say gun toad, we mean literally, she carries a gun, she drives a truck, she listens to Dolly Parton. I'm Tommy Winners. <laughs> and she also is an old friend of the Stantons, right? She was with them in Florida campaigning for George McGovern. That's And we have the, one of those wonderful moments that are so great in movies where in order to show that they knew each other when they were younger, there's like a photoshopped 1970s-style picture that has Emma, Emily's... a very thin Kathy Bates, yeah. and John Travolta, like, photoshopped together wearing, like, hippie flower children outfits. You've seen those pictures of Hillary Clinton when she's, like... She, her and Bill look like two like hippie dippy shitheads. Yeah, and that's and I'd imagine that they just put a, a kind of Virginia Slims version of <laughs> Kathy Bates right next yeah. to them. That's that's what we get. So the the Stantons and Libby have this past relationship, but Libby has kind of gone off the deep end. They they say that she's had a nervous breakdown. She's been in the quote booby hatch, and she's just quite unstable. But she's the right person to track down the stories. You know, I find it interesting that Kathy Bates got an Oscar nomination for this. It's just that I think it's an example of, of a performance in a film that, while credible, is kind of one note. And then when she comes in, she kind of messes things around. She gets the best dialogue. She's larger than life. And she is playing a weird character as well, who actually has the most things happen to her more than any other character. She goes in kind of the biggest journey. She's the, But she's the emotional centre of the film, because as they say, she has galloping TB true believerism. Yeah, and this is actually something I want to talk about a bit. Yeah. I was talking earlier about, you know, using using lies for for good. Yeah. So the other side of this coin is somebody who's only believes in the truth. And I think that's actually kind of the appeal of Bernie Sanders a little bit. There's a reason why he motivated the young very much. It's because there is a sense of true believerism. I believe in this person, his values completely. It- a sense of purity, political and mor- moral purity, that, you know, will never be corrupted or cheapened. And certainly, the Clintons have had their fair share of corruption, lies, and scandals. Bill more than Hillary, in my estimation, but, you know... Hillary's biggest blunders have been political ones rather than character ones. Yeah, I mean... Again, no hate mail, please. We know all about Benghazi. And the emails. The emails. We know all about it. Well, America is sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Back to the movie. So where does this kind of true believerism purity kind of come to a head? So Libby is colorfully battling all the um, scandals. And essentially, they end up running against a candidate that they didn't expect to be running against because the Songus-like figure has a heart attack. He drops out, and we get lovable Larry Hagman. The way that the plot goes is what? not based on anything truth. Well, you know, eventually accurate. you have to give up on the truth. And yeah, make things. You know, yeah, it becomes a fictional yeah. story. But the the thing is, so this 
Larry Hagman character is this kind of real uh, saintly sort of figure. And the reason why he seems to be doing better than the Stantons is because he seems to be super clean, to have no scandals, no trouble. He's a sort of reasonable man. Quite empathetic. He doesn't want to use negative campaigning in any way. So much so that his kind of kindness and empathy on the campaign trail is so refreshing that people respond to it. Yeah, refreshing or sanctimonious, depending on your opinion. But, of course, he's being set up for a fall because, obviously, you know, Stanton may have the drug thing, the woman thing, the hippie thing, the war thing, but it turns out that this guy, Picker, that Larry Hagman plays, has a much bigger thing. And they, they suspect that he probably does. And so they send Libby, conveniently um, co-piloting with... Henry Burton, our cipher, who's along for the ride, they go down to Florida, which is the center of all vice. Yes, and it what do they what do they discover down there? They discover buff waiters in little uh, speedos. Yeah, it was a bit like having having uh, previously uh-huh. referenced postcards for the edge. Now they go and they get a little bit like the the Mike Nichols universe, like intersects because it's you expect like Nathan Lane and Robin Williams to swan in from the birdcage in that in that part, you know. So basically, it turns out that Larry Hagman has had a secret past. Yeah, and his real past is that he's done an awful lot of cocaine, but also that he's had sex with men. Yeah, so basically, the moral crux of it comes down to they get all this backstory and they're like, what are we going to do with this? We have to bring this back to Jack and Susan. And Kathy Bates, with all her galloping true believerism, is like, this is a test. I'm going to give them this dirty, negative story that has nothing to do with the guy's politics, everything to do with his personal traits, and we're going to see what their reaction is. Are they idealists in the way that they were back in the McGovern days, or are they, you know, just as cynical and opportunistic as as everyone else? Mm. As it plays out, the person who seems the most eager to launch a campaign to get this information out there is Susan Stanton. She says instantaneously when they look at the document. We could give this to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Through an intermediary, it would look more authoritative. And when Libby and Henry sort of challenge them on this, this is where, this is the kind of central dialectic. This is where it gets actually quite interesting. Yeah. They really go in depth into the McGovern campaign in, um... 1972. Dirty personal details about McGovern's vice presidential candidate, Eagleton. It's called the Eagleton Affair. You know, information was leaked that he had had shock treatment therapy for depression. And, you know, this scuppered their whole campaign. Could you imagine this happening today? I still think, to be honest, if someone had serious mental illness that they were trying to keep hushed up, I think that would still be a big deal today. They would probably be more open in discussing it initially. Do you know Mm. what I mean? But anyway, that is held up as like an example of in the old days when this was what foiled McGovern and Eagleton. Young Jack Stanton said, we're here to end all this. We're not going to play by these dirty rules. Libby is absolutely horrified that they seem to be making a compromise case, a kind of non-purist case that they need to um, bring this scandal out Because, and actually, and this was the part that seemed the most convincing. Now, both Jack and Susan say, look, if we don't bring this scandal out now... Somebody else will. And he'll become the Democratic nominee. The Republican will... Savage him. Savage him, and the entire election will be lost. You see, this is what separates you and I, Brian, from other people. Is that, you know, we 
do see the the cold rationale behind it. No, no, I'm not saying that I would do it or well, that it's right. It. I'm, I'm just yeah. saying like it's a perfectly reasonable way to think, especially in U.S. politics. Yeah, I think probably the most emotional moment of the movie comes after it's clear that the Stantons have wanted to use this information and Libby is positively devastated. She is, yeah. And I would argue, actually, Sean, that Kathy Bates' performance is absolutely not one note. I want to take that back. Yeah. The thing about it is, Bobby, what makes her character interesting, even though she is a ball buster, tough as nails, you know... Holds guns, you know, to people. She, 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 die, die kind of like... The thing is, even though she does these things, in her heart, she's a person with very true beliefs of what is right and what is wrong. And vulnerability in that lovely, lovely monologue, which is very emotional, and was her Oscar clip. Oh, honey. You see that mood? That's me. It's beautiful, huh? But Henry, it's only reflected light. It needs the sun. And the Stantons are my son. I live my life drawing light and warmth from them. Without them, I'm bleak and cold and airless for eternity. And, you know, we've known that she's unstable and we've known that she has a gun. Yeah. Stupid, stupid Adrian Lester. Why did he leave her alone? She shoots herself. She does, yeah. She dies. Because she's a character who seems so in charge. And, I mean, and that's, I think, why she got the Oscar nomination. Because it has all these colors. Primary colors. And secondary colors. Even tertiary colors. (laughs) What did it get nominated for at the Oscars? Screenplay and Kathy Bates. Mm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, exactly. The Stantons are absolutely devastated that Libby has died. Eventually, they go and they bring the information to Larry Hagman directly and allow him to decide what to do with it. And instead, he just withdraws from the campaign. But still, Henry is shocked and appalled and has lost every shred of innocence. And we're kind of left hanging. We don't know whether he stays or not because it jumps ahead to the inaugural ball. The Stantons in full inauguration regalia with... with the balloons strewn. Balloons strewn. Emma in a swirling red train are spinning, spinning, spinning. And they're shaking hands with all their supporters and campaign operatives. And there's Henry, Adrian Lester. And noticeably, a woman says to the Stantons just at the end of the film, now don't break our hearts, you hear? Mm. And the question is... Having got to the pinnacle of um, political power, will they remain true to their ideals? And that's what it, it's a, it's a, it might as well have been called Heartbreakers. <laughs> if that title hadn't already been taken. Actually, it hadn't been taken yet. Oh, it's a shame. Because they could have called Heartbreakers Primary Colors instead. <laughs> Heartbreakers, parentheses, Primary Colors. <laughs> but it could have been called Heartbreakers because it's the question of, will, will they break the political hearts, but also... Kathy Bates has... She dies, essentially, of a broken heart. She's a bit... You know, to be honest... I don't know if I like that title, she's a, she's a, <laughs> How about Heartburn? Is that Mike Nichols as well? It, it is, it is. Yes! It's also Mike Nichols. With the great Carly Simon song. You know, I think Carly Fiorina should sing the title. Carly um, Fiorina had proved herself to be a wonderful singer. I can't wait for the Broadway revival of Call Me Madam with Carly Fiorina. You know what? This I think this election season... Is going to inspire 
film the way I think like the Iraq War inspired film. You know the way you, you know these things do have knock on effects. But what do you mean? You mean actual depictions of these candidates or of the the general climate of the time. It's going to be the climate. Like I think actually in some ways American Sniper was the, the gateway into this uh, attitude because what? Well, because the American Sniper was about somebody who fought for their freedoms and was his hero and then comes back and is like this broken person. Because I think this, this this narrative of broken America or America that needs to be healed is going to be what we see in film for the next couple of years. Probably not from any major studios because we're just the only brokenness we're going to get is like Iron Man breaking, you know, <laughs> Gotham City or whatever the fuck they do. But, I mean, from HBO, Jay Roach will produce yes. a, few, a few things for us. Like, well, that, I guess, leads us to, to wrap up about Primary Colors. Is there a better movie about the Clintons or the Clinton era to make than this one? You know, I think we're still living in an age where a woman just can't be a woman in politics. She has to be something harder or tougher or... I just think we, we, we don't take female candidates based on their abilities just yet. Susan Stanton is a consequence of the world she's living in. She's the smartest person in the room if she can't open her mouth. And also, like, imagine her and Libby as a power lesbian couple. There is that moment. I like. See, I love all the little details of the but film. But you want to say... This, I also don't want to say that just because two women are strong and close... They have to be lesbians. No, I, I love know. lesbians. Okay, but first of I all, support Sean, Sean, first of all, Libby is actually a lesbian yeah, in the film. Yeah, Libby is a lesbian. And they have this implied relationship. Like, there's this bit where she, like, lies down, like, in Libby's lap, and they're, like, she's, like, massaging her feet. And you think, You know, I've oh, massaged some the, feet before. In the 19th, People I barely knew. In the 1970s, something happened here between them. There is a closeness and a bond, and it's very interesting. And, like... Why the hell do they have to hitch their wagon or paint their wagon or hitch their hitch star, their whatever they have to do, to some oh. philandering, you know, numbskull who's eaten apple fritters like Jack Stanton slash Bill Clinton? Like, wouldn't we be better off if just Hillary had been the one who ran first than Bill? I don't know. Maybe we wouldn't. We'd be better. You know, we'd be better off, Sean. We'd be better off if Emma Thompson was prime minister of Great Britain. You know, we'd be better off. If Walter Mondale had won and and then died in office, how would that? Why? Because Geraldine Ferraro would have been the president. <laughs> and we all know we love Geraldine Ferraro. Well, I love Ferraro. What a shame. <laughs> Sean, Sean, yet again, we have gone from the heights of political speculation to the depths of complete inanity. Imbeciliousness. Imbecility. This is our very last episode of the season. Can I just ask you, do you like Emma Thompson? In fact, I only conspired to do this whole podcast to try and get you to decide that you like Emma Thompson. And I think, actually, of all the things we've succeeded in, I have failed. Yeah, actually, I, I, I think... We're just going to go have to go off mic and watch those frou-frou period dramas you like. Maybe Last Chance Harvey. Maybe The Winter Guest. Something. Something will push him over the edge, folks. How about House of the Spirits? I know she's not in it, but she I is, want to see it anyway. She is very good as Susan Stanton, don't you no, think? No, she is. She is. But you know what? There's going to be a film one day about Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton, just themselves. Yeah. And as you said, there's no reason why she can't play it again. It'll be Meryl no, fucking Street. No, it won't. Who? It'll be Jennifer Lawrence. Ah! 
It'll, it'll be 31-year-old Jennifer Lawrence playing Hillary Clinton. Like, like no, she's 24 now, but I'm, I'm being, I'm being like rational about this. She'll turn 31, 32 maybe, and she'll be playing a 68-year-old woman. They can call, they can call the makeup artist from For the Boys to apply some latex. Sean, this has been Broad Appeal season one. As we said in our season wrap-up mini-cast, we are not exactly sure what's happening. But we want to hear from you, the voters. We feel your pain. This is not a democracy, though. We're the superdelegates. Yay! <laughs> do you agree? Of course I we do. We don't believe in democracy. However, we will take suggestions and bribes. So if anyone wants to tell us what you think the next season of Broad Appeal should or should not include... While we don't plan to stay in the 1990s, we are willing to take any and all suggestions. Yes, yeah, so if you want to put it in a tweet... We're at Broad Appeal Pod or at Sean McGovern X or at BML and Speaks. But you can also write us longer messages at our Gmail account, which, which we is, never check. No, I but we will. Sometimes. We promise I to check it regularly. Okay, good. Uh, we don't have any emails. <laughs> <laughs> it's broadappealpod at gmail.com. If you like it, if you hate it, just write to us. We've got nothing else to do. I know. And ladies and gentlemen, there won't be any episodes coming down the pike soon. But please do subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And that way, when new episodes come, you will receive them. And remember, Broad Appeal is not limited to time. It is time fluid. There's 20 episodes there for you. And so you could introduce them to your grandparents, your, your housekeepers, your... Your beauticians, your plumbers, your pool boys, <laughs> anyone who appreciates 1990s cinema. So, Brian, what have been your favorite episodes? Just quickly wrapping up. Any any highlights? Oh, I couldn't choose. It's like choosing between my children. Sophie's choice. But come on, Sophie made a choice, so you can choose one. I think the Evita episode was an early classic. I think it was nice and tight. I know what you're gonna say. You love damage. Oh, no, I was going to say that. Damage is very good. I think one of my favourite episodes of the entire series uh, was definitely To Die For, so I'd recommend people to come back to that. Damage, die, To Die For, Evita. We want to spe say a special shout-out to our um, guest hosts who came and joined us, Melissa Bubnick and, and Alan Flanagan. Yes. Thank you very much. We might hear from them again. We want to shout-out to all our beloved listeners as well. Brian, it's been an amazing journey. You know, from 1990 to 1999, I've been with you. Every step of the way, friend. And as Cloris Leachman once said, it's not over yet. And as Julia Pinoche said, this is a dream. This must be a French dream, I think. Bye. Bye.